You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Sergeant Arseni Fedesuk. Thanks for joining us. So just to start off, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? where you came from and how you came to be serving in the Azov in Mariupol? I joined military in 2014 when the war started. Firstly, I joined military as a volunteer. I had no previous military experience before I joined military. Before our first battle, we had boot camp. We obtained some basic tactical skills and some basic tactical medicine skills, and that's all. After that, we went to Ilovaisk. If you remember, it was uh, one of the uh, it was one of the biggest battles during the first first period of the war. We gained some experience actually during the battles. So, and as for me, the first year of uh, that war, the first year passed in volunteer battalions. After that, I went back to my hometown, stayed there for several months, and after that, I decided to join a professional military unit. And in 2016, I signed a contract with Azov with the National Guard of Ukraine and started my military career. I passed five years on active duty in uh, Azov Regiment. First three years uh, passed for me in an infantry battalion. After that, in 2019, I decided to join reconnaissance and I became a sniper. Uh, So two years from 2019 till 2021, I worked as a sniper. Three months before the full-scale invasion started, my contract ended and I resigned from the military. But the day before, before the, the big war started, I returned back to Mariupol because I knew that like the big war should begin. And for me it was important to be with my military unit, with my friends, with my brothers in arms. So I went back to Mariupol on the February 23rd. So as for, for me, this, uh, the big war be- uh, started in, in Mariupol. I passed through all Mariupol campaign uh, when, as you know, we get captured by Russians. Uh, so all our regiment went to captivity. And after seven months of, of uh, military prison, I was exchanged. So you rejoined the Azov regiment on February 23rd. Can you tell me a little bit about, about the regiment, how big it is, how many battalions, how many soldiers? For that period, uh, before the full-scale invasion, Azov regiment uh, numbered around from 1,000 to 1,100 people. It was including like women, non-combatants, and uh, and so on. We had two infantry battalions. It's called mechanized infantry. It's like old Soviet traditions of mechanized infantry battalions. Each battalion was consisted of three companies three infantry companies and mortar division and uh, tactical medicine squad. Also we had tank company, artillery division, reconnaissance company and a sniper company. And who was the commander? Commander of his regiment, Denis Prokopenko, Redis. So when did it start for you? So I know you, you said you rejoined on February 23rd. The full-scale invasion starts on February 24th, technically. 
where exactly were you in Mariupol at the Azov Regiment headquarters? For that time, we, we had several bases, three actually, one in Mariupol and two others in the outlying villages, the village of Urzuf and the village uh, Yurivka. My company was located in the village called Yurivka. It's around 40 kilometers from Mariupol to the west. So maybe at 5, 4 or maybe 5 o'clock in the morning we were put on alert because actually the war started. Uh, we heard explosions made by uh, Russian uh, rocket attack. Russians targeted Mariupol airport and uh, Mariupol air defense system. So the first thing they targeted it was a radar. And the fact that they destroyed that uh, air defense radar made our air defense absolutely useless. Because without a radar, all the systems cannot work. So, uh, because of that, in Mariupol, uh, their airplanes fell themselves home. And I think in this war, we haven't seen such intense use of airplanes by Russians as we saw in Mariupol. So, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, we were put on alert and we started uh, evacuating from our base. We started evacuating uh, personnel, uh, ammunition started burning uh, some sensible documentation and we started evacuating and we went to Mariupol because it wasn't safe to stay on this base. As for me it was a surprise that they did not launch an attack on our military base. From my point of view, from like from the military point of view, it would be very useful to destroy a base like uh, right away from the beginning of the war. But they didn't do that and actually because of that they faced a lot of problems, but luckily they didn't uh, launch attack on our base. So we had, we had a chance to evacu evacuate from this base, so we had a plenty of time. And maybe afternoon we were in Mariupol, we resettled to one building, then another building, so we were moving constantly. After that our company resettled to a building uh, near the school in Mariupol. And the first week we lived uh, like in that in that building. So you you moved out of your base, you moved into Mariupol city, eventually a, a stronger building, uh, and that's a week into the war. What's next? First week there was no combat actions in Mariupol. We had combat actions on the outline in the outlying villages. On the first week we tried to repel them from the outlying villages. So, the first major battle we had in the village called Stary Krim. It's to the north. So, as you know, Russia, Russians advanced from three directions. From east, from west, and then the column that went from west separated into two columns, and they're advancing from the west and from the north. The first column who tried to enter the city was the column that was advancing from the north. Because on the east had all defensive lines from the anti-terrorist operation and that was pretty good defensive lines, that was not so easy to go th through them. But as for other places, our direction, there was no defensive lines. And there was some kind of betray from, from some people from Ukrainian state system. Because the general that was uh, responsible for the defense of Mariupol he left the city several days before the full-scale invasion and the whole month before the full-scale invasion he made a lot of obstacles for us to make these defensive lines 
on the western and northern directions. So the first time our group faced the enemy, it was the battle in Stary Krim. I think it was 28th, 28th of February, yes, if I remember it right, yes. So there advancing, there was a tank column. It was considered maybe from four to six tanks. And there was some armored vehicles to provide support for the, for the tanks. And what kind of equipment did you have? Did you have mechanized infantry, anti-tank guns? My combat group, like we have our company, Reconnaissance Company, we had one BTR-3 with 30mm mortar. Oh, no, no, we had two BTR-3. One of them was destroyed several days after this battle. And that's all. What about like ammunition and weaponry? We had light weaponry, so AK-74, AR-15, RPG, anti-tank complex such as uh, Fagot. Fagot, yeah. Stugna? Uh, no, there was no single Stugna in Azov. Uh, javelin? No, no, we were, uh, no. Like for that time, we can't receive all these uh, like Western examples of ammunition. Because, you know, this, this politics. So we had around 40 enlaws for the old defense of Mariupol. 40 enlaws for all the regiment. And our company had maybe 5 or 6 enlaws. And I think that's, yes, that's all. So you're at, uh, on February 28th in Starry Cream, there's a lot of fighting? Yes. So Russians were trying to move their 10 columns towards Mariupol. And we were uh, repelling uh, their attacks. It started like, actually, uh, at that day it started and ended as a tank fight between our tanks and their tanks. Also, we are using our BTR. It's very efficient to use the 30mm even to fight against tanks because it has a lot of power. We burned several tanks from one to three tanks because I don't remember the actual count. After that, we started to hold the defense in this uh, village and then at night as long as our group like we were uh, we have good night skills and we had good night equipment so night vision goggles uh, night vision uh, not google but pvs 14 okay uh, monocular and uh, thermal sights great for example my combat group consisted of 12 people and eight of them had thermal sights it's pretty good quantity for for such a group. So at night we went to this village of Starry Krim. We found where the Russians were located and we were ready, completely ready to start like the direct confrontation with them. But we were ordered to go back. So it was very strange decision as for me for that time, but like it's an order and uh, you can't, Sorry. yes, yeah. you should you should obey the order. So you told the pull back into the city? Uh, yes, yes. We took the pull back into the city. The next month for us passed in, like in night operations. We worked predominantly at night. So for mo most of March you were doing night operations? With uh, uh, yes, yes. Defensive, just defending or attacking? Uh, just defending, just defending. So I'm kind of like an urban warfare guy. Were you using the buildings as defensive positions and maneuvering from building to building? Of course, of course. All defensive lines light in buildings. 
because uh, in the city you can't make trenches. Right. You can't make trenches in, in the, those uh, asphalt roads. So all defensive lines, as ours, Russians, in the cities, all defensive line lies in the in the building. Did you dig any tunnels, or were there tunnels underneath the buildings to help you to move from building to building without being seen, or? Uh, no, no, no. There was no time for that. No time and no equipment. It's not uh, like a soil. But a lot of Mariupol was being bombed at this point, right? In March, a lot of the bombing is starting. They started bombing Mariupol like from the very first days of, of the invasion. And uh, like massive uh, artillery shellings, that was pretty casual story for all this uh, battle for, of, of Mariupol. After maybe third week, they started their extensive use of uh, airplanes. Airplanes uh, launched uh, rocket attacks and they used unguided aerial bombs, FAP 250, FAP 500. This number it means like how, uh, how much does this bomb weigh in kilograms. Yeah. So you, you can imagine just how explosion could be big. Yeah. So, ah, also, we were aimed like to work at night, but as long as in, in Mariupol there was uh, like pretty difficult situation and human resources were scarce, we started uh, like to work at night, at the day, like around the clock. And uh, really in Mariupol, I don't remember actual dates of the events. I bet, yeah. Yes, I remember like several dates when my close friends died and that's all. But I remember like the the sequence of the events. So we started to to work at the left bank of Mariupol. At that time we had several uh, good operations. First operation it was maybe the mid March in Mariupol. Oh, first I want to say about Russian tactics in Mariupol. They were using like both mobilized groups and professional militaries, and they were using like such a style to assault you in several waves. During the first wave, they were using predominantly mobilized. And their aim was to rupture like our defensive lines and our position. After that, after revealing our positions, our firing points, they launched artillery shellings on lead points to destroy them. And after that, they sent professional militaries and they started over and over. So, and it was maybe mid-March, we had such, such a situation, around 70 of mobilized people, they were mobilized from occupied territories of Donetsk region. So, DPR? Yes, DPR. They occupied a building on the residential areas on the left bank of Mariupol. Well, here it is. You can see it's like a very long complex of buildings. So, in the eastern part of Mariupol? Yes, we called it a left bank because like city is divided into two banks by the river of Kalmius, the left and, and the right. So the group consists of 70, uh, 70 people and they occupied this complex of buildings and our aim was to push them out from the buildings, either push them out from the buildings or neutralize them. During this fight, we, we worked together with the special police forces, court. It's a special police forces division. Yeah, I had a question about that, since there is, like we know in the Battle of Mariupol that there was the Marines, there was the police, there was the Azov. Like when did you start working together and was that controlled by like the commanders and did they form groups of mixture of 
Azov, police, Marines. How did that work with knowing or working with the other forces that were helping to defend Mariupol? Mm, uh, we worked together like f- from the beginning. Almost at all positions uh, on our defensive lines, the group were mixed. And they could consist from several people from Azov, several from National Guard, or several from Territorial Defense. But like where the Ilicha plant was located, that part of the city was defended by 36 brigade. And Azov held defense on the east, uh, on this like left bank of Mariupol, and uh, at the north, north, northern part of the city. So this part, the Ilicha plant, and this part was defended by 36 uh, brigade. And who had the right bank? Right bank. Also Azov with neighboring units. So at this location where there are 70 DPR holding a series of buildings? Yes. And we work together with with Court. They are good in CQB. They also, they trained only. This is the police? Yes, this is the police. Special police forces. And they are very good in CQB. That's where they are like, they work. So we are work together with them to assault the, the group. Uh, this battle lasted for two days. First, we were trying to force them to uh, leave the building using the suppressive fire. From the BTR? From, uh, from the BTR, from large caliber machine guns, 12.7 millimeters. It's like you 0.50 BMG by rocket launchers, like RPG. You're just shooting all this at the building and they're inside the building trying to hold it? Yes, yes. Okay. So we uh, we were trying to figure out their firing points in, in the windows. Yeah. Uh, we also we used drones. Uh, drones helped us to reveal their their firing points. And these are just civilian drones like DJI's. Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, all all our drones were like those civilian drones, DJI, Autel. We had like both day drones and night drones with thermal yeah. matrix. Any with the ability to drop grenades or not yet? We had several drones. They could uh, drop grenades and mines, okay. 82 millimeter mines. But I think we lost them during this first several weeks. Got it. Uh, we had like several, only uh, like one or two such drones. Okay. It's not like such extensive use of drones like we can see na- nowadays. Right. right. Now it's, uh, it's yes, yes, yeah. thousands. Yeah. We had no FPV drones for that time. So now the war went uh, like further and further. Yes. Now it's bigger. In Mariupol, like, it was pretty asymmetrical war for us. Because our enemy had almost everything and we had nothing. And our nothing was very limited, like, <laughs> in, in the size. So, the battle lasted for two days. And the second day, we started entering the building. And we captured a group of that company. We captured from 11 or 12 fighters. They were afraid to go into direct confrontation with us and they decided to surrender so we captured a group another group was blocked and after that like our mission was completed and we left because all uh, our group worked predominantly in such difficult situations and after uh, like we did our work we go back to have some rest because i know that the next day somewhere on the front lines there will be the next like difficult situation yeah your company was like a an assault company Yes, we were in the reserve, 
We call the, ourselves the rescue team. Nice. If so, somebody anywhere need help, we go there and provide that help. That's awesome that you're the reserve for basically the Azov. How big was that rescue team, that reserve element? Our company was consisted of 45 people. It was like two combat groups, medics, anti-tank group with Fagot, radio operator, several snipers. But it was like two combat groups. And when you attacked this series of buildings with the DPR, in a, did you have to do CQB, like clearing rooms? Yes. I know you said you used initially suppressive fire. Did you have any smoke? No, we were using just uh, like grenades, simple yeah. grenades, yeah. And, and that's all. Okay, great. So it was mid-March after the assault of this building. You had some prisoners or, or captured some people. I was curious that, I mean, I know that the bombing is nonstop, basically from February 24th on. How did you and your fellow soldiers stay safe during the bombings? I don't really know. Was there basements and buildings that you were staying in that you... We lived for that time during the, all these our operations on left bank. We lived at the Azov Steel, at oh, the, so the basement. When did you move into the Azov Steel factory? We moved there at the end of the first week. Wow. So used it as a base of operations from beginning of March, really? Yes, it was like our base. Had you been in the steel factory before the war? No, no. Who else was there? Was this, were civilians already there or not yet? No, a lot of civilians were there for the time. A lot of civilians were using the shelters, their basement like shelters. But I saw civilians like only several times at the Ace of Steel. Did they have like a different area where they were staying than the yes. military? Uh, yes, they had separate basements. There were some mixed basements where like both the military and civilians lived. Because a lot of civilians were like relatives of, of the military. Yeah, their families, right? Yes. Wow, I can't imagine. And I've heard stories about how the Azov, I mean, it's basically a, it's a steel factory, a very famous steel factory, but it, it had an underground, which was meant for the workers of the factory, right? Like 10,000 of the workers. And was it provisioned, though, with food and water for that purpose? Like, was there stuff for the civilians and for the military already in the underground of the Azov? There were some food and water supplies. Because as long as Mariupol is an industrial city, there are a lot of industrial areas and a lot of chemicals. And the shelters, they're aimed to cover people during some faults on the factory, some chemical disasters and so on. But they were not suitable to defend people from uh, artillery and aerial attacks and rocket attacks. So the shelters was good to keep people safe from some chemical disaster, but not from the rockets. Okay. Some areas were bunkers though, right? There's rumors that it was basically Soviet bunkers underneath. I can say that those bunkers are very overestimated. Okay. Because we had a situation in the last month of our defense when uh, Russians destroyed such such bunkers with rockets or rocket attacks. With the bombs? Yes, with bombs and, and rockets. Since you moved in there at the beginning of March, how did you guys get your supplies, your food, your water, your ammo? Uh, was it just what you had or was there resupplies? We moved all our supplies from our military bases in Mariupol, Yurivka and Turzuf. Yeah. 
And when the war started, we moved all our supplies right away to the Azov Steel. Wow. And all supplies were concentrated on the Azov Steel. That's really interesting for me because most people who understood the, the Battle of Mariupol view the Azov stall towards the end. But you're saying that it was basically a base of operation from the beginning and you would go out from the factory to fight and then come back to the, the factory to rest. Yes, but it's real, real, relevant, for example, for our company. Yeah. Because like other battalion, infantry battalions, they live just where they hold the defense. Okay. Oh, for the reserves. Yeah, since you had the reserves, you kind of move back and forward. But some people held the line out in the city. Uh, yes. And then there was also a unit in the Ilyich steel factory as well, right? Yes. Yeah. By the end of the march, we moved to the right bank of Mariupol, and for one month we operated on the right bank, So and we lived there. We had to move constantly, because almost no safe place. And so imagine the situation, so we moved into a house, after that our enemy like sent a drone to make reconnaissance. The drone captures us, and after that they launch attacks on that building. So you have to move constantly. So there's really no threat to the Russian air. You had a lot of Russian drones and aircraft above you all the yes. time, right? Yes, yes. Every night they launched drone with thermal vision. It was every night, like from 7 p.m. till 3 a.m. The drone operated every day. And like at the daytime, they also they used uh, these drones for the intelligent purposes. So in the territory was not very big. Our territory, the free, free land, we called it. It was not very big. For Russians, it was very easy like to capture the positions of our forces. Because when you have like only several square kilometers of territory to right. observe, it's very easy to find where your enemy is located. Ah, and it's also I have to mention that it was during all the Battle of Mariupol, it was very hard to fight because there were a lot of civilians. And like before, each operation, we had firstly to isolate the territory from the civilians. We had to guide them to the shelters, we had to tell them, because people got insane. Some people got absolutely fearless. No, people got used to that shellings, to, right. to the shootings, yeah. and people got fearless. We had constantly to guide them to the shelters and to watch them to stay in the shelters. So about this operation, that was battle with Garou. The main intelligence directorate, the special forces unit from main intelligence directorate. So did you always know who you were facing? Because I know you talked about DPR and the professional soldiers, but there was also the Chechens and a lot of other forces attacking in Mariupol. Did you usually know who you were fighting? You can find out whom you're fighting from the appearance of your enemy. So if your enemy had poor ammunition, poor equipment, you can mention that it's mobilized. And if you face like a professional fighter with a good combat vest, with a helmet, with Googles, with some technical equipment, then you can think that it's somebody professional. But during that fight, we didn't know that it was like Garou. Yeah. We realized it maybe the, the next day. So how it was, we were put on alert uh, maybe at 10 a.m. in the morning, and we were told that there is armored vehicles column that used gaps in our defensive lines to infiltrate deep into the city, into our defense. And there was a column that consisted of nine 
armored vehicles. It was several Typhoon vehicles, then several BTR-82. Okay. So that was, I think that was a, a whole company. As we were told after that, their aim was to infiltrate into the Azov Steel factory and neutralize our common stuff. They were very good e equipped, very good. They had like night visions, thermal scopes, anti-drone rifles. And this is around late March? Okay. Yes, late March. So, and they occupied a building near the factory, so you can imagine. Our defensive lines lies somebody here, and our enemy is right here, near the factory. It was a very dangerous situation. And it's a specialized professional unit. Yes. As for real, that was a pretty suicide mission for them. But they had a lot of such suicide missions okay. in Mariupol. So they occupied a building here, and we succeeded in blocking them in that building. A firefight started. During that firefight, we, using RPGs, burned several of their armored vehicles. After that, we called our tank division, and a tank was helping us using that one tank. And using uh, 120mm mortar, we destroyed almost all their armored vehicles. How many tanks do you think you had to defend the city of Mariupol? At the beginning, Azov had 7 tanks. Also, 36th Brigade had tanks. But I can tell you how much. And you had mortars? Did you have artillery and grad? Or? 36th Brigade had grads, but we, we don't. Okay. You had 120 mortars though? We had 120 mortars, 82 millimeter mortars, when we had the 13 artillery system, but we were out of artillery rounds. Got it. So we were using only like 120 and 82 millimeters. So we blocked them in that building, and it was like a great stroke of luck that they did not have time to carry out their equipment from that armored vehicles. So we destroyed both the armored vehicles and all the equipment they had, like night vision, night vision thermal scopes and so on. So we completely made them blind at night for that time. Direct confrontation lasted for several hours. We had a plan to assault that building from different sides. So we blocked them and we had our positions from the south. We hold defense in this building. How tall is the building that you're defending? Two-story building, yes. But it's not very good, that's was made like from paper. It's very thin. And we are using like these buildings. And our part of our group held defense in that building. It was called a skeleton because it, it's an unfinished building. The distance between our like positions was around 150 meters. So it's pretty short distance. So the firefight lasted for several hours. Almost all their armored vehicles were burning, all except one, one BTR-82. And uh, we had a plan to go from two directions simultaneously and to eliminate all of them. And we started to observe how we can get there from this direction. Also, we are using BTR-3. This BTR were staying like this position and firing towards them. But as long as... They had one BTR left, so that BTR started firing to our BTR and targeted into our BTR and our vehicle had to like move back. After that they started very massive artillery shelling 
and their artillery showed very great like professionalism in that situation because the distance between like Russians and us was 150 meters yeah. and uh, their artillerist targeted us very precisely. Wow. Yeah, we call that hugging, right? Where if you're too close, they can't shoot at you, but they managed to do it. Yes, they managed. They did really really good work. And they launched an artillery strike on this area. Very heavy artillery strike and five of us got wounded. And two of them had like critical bleeding, arterial bleeding. And we had to move back to evacuate them. After that, we managed to regroup and came back here maybe at 6 p.m. Where did you take your wounded? Back into the Avastal? They had like a field hospital there? To the field hospital, yes. I saw a lot of photos and a lot of videos of that field hospital. Yes, it was a big hospital. There was even professional uh, surgical equipment. Had professional... Surgeons? Surgeons, yes. But the power, water, and gas to Mariupol was cut the first week, right? Yes. So did you have power in the steel factory? We used generators. Okay. And lots of pre-positioned generators and fuel was already there? Yes, yes. But now you're, you're, you came back at 6 p.m. to counterattack, right? Yes, to counterattack. And we decided to use our night advantage, night equipment, yeah. yes, to attack them. We did not know how many of them are located here. Our group was consisted maybe of here was eight people and here was also eight people. So in total 16, that's not, not a lot. And we did not know how many of them are here. And firstly, we started to observe this point. And after several hours of observation, uh, also before that, we were using like drones to make recon. But there was no signs of any living persons here. So we even thought that they leave this building. But after several hours of observation, uh, we captured one person, then another, then another, and then like almost all of them went from the shelter here. And we saw a group maybe of 20 people. And as long as almost all of us had thermal scopes, our group that was located in this building started firing. Yeah. And maybe in two minutes we eliminated like 17 of them. Wow. Almost everything who was there. Because they couldn't see anything. Uh, yes. Firstly, they thought that we are attacking them from this direction, from the south. And I decided to act a little tricky. I loaded my magazine with... Uh, tracer. Yes, with tracer. To make a picture like we are attacking them from this direction. But right. from this direction, I saw nothing. They were seen only from this direction. But I decided to make a picture like they are attacking them from this. Right. And uh, firstly, they thought that we are like firing from this point. And that's why our guys here made a really efficient work, like firing them with no uh, return fire. But then they figured out that our group is located here and they started using their BTR, 30mm gun, to attack our guys here. But that attack was inefficient. And after that, our guys evacuated from that building. Our mission was completed. Almost all of them were eliminated. So we gave the, these positions to our infantry and, and like went home. Right, okay. It's a very sad situation, what we had next. We had very limited people resources, and the amount of people who were blocking them after that were around maybe two people here, and that's all. So the guard position was just two people? Yes, if it's just two, up to five maximum. Yeah. yeah, how did you keep as a stall safe? As in, like, how many forces did you have to use to secure 
the steel factory to be a base for you? Was a lot of troops? When? We're about at the end of March now. Like, and then of March, we did not use people to secure as of steel. We used people to secure our defensive lines all over the city. Okay. Because the defensive line was pretty uh, long. The amount of people was limited. So we can't allow ourselves like to use people to secure in this, uh, this territory. There was several checkpoints. Mm -hmm. And there was like people on the, on the checkpoints. And, yeah. uh, and that's all. But you had a defensive line outside the city. Yes. Uh, also, we had positions on this hill. That's a hill. And that's a height. It's called Cinder Mount. Yes, it's made of cinder. And you had forces up top there just because they could see across the factory? We were observing like the coastline. Got it. Because I don't remember when it was. Maybe it was the mid-April or the end of April. They were trying to assault us by sea using the BTR-82. They can swim, the type of BTR. And they went from this coast right here swimming by the sea on the BTR. And they are trying to assault this syndrome out. Wow. But all these intentions were like repelled. And uh, for, for that operation, they were using also the Garou, yeah. Garou forces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th that was like a second suicide mission for them. Uh, but they were definitely trying. Yes. Because like the speed of the BTR, uh, w which is swimming, is uh, maybe up to six kilometers per hour. It's very slow. It's like the speed of uh, the average person walking. Yeah. It's, it's very easy to target them even with, with an RPG. When do you think that was around the beginning of April, you said? When they had tried to attack Cinder Mountain? Yes, that was definitely April. Maybe it was like the mid-April or the end of April. Okay. So what's next? After the successful operation to kill the GRU unit, what's next for you? After several days, we moved to the right bank to help our troops on the, on the right, right bank of Mariupol. I don't remember some like prominent operations. Right. This was like a casual work. So every night we went to s some positions and trying to kill them at night. Well, almost every night we had some good results, almost every night. But as for that time, as for me, it became obvious that our enemy has total superiority. It's like superiority in the numbers, of personal superiority in numbers of armored vehicles in all ways and means. And for that time, I think that was a matter of self-defense. Was there a point where you realized that you were surrounded and there would be no... Yes, maybe at the end of the march, like all major roads were blocked yep. by Russians. Did the commanders talk to you guys where they said, okay, we're surrounded, but we're going to fight till the end? Yes. And also we were told constantly that some help like is on the way we need to hold like a week 10 days five days they told us it all, all the time but i did not believe that because i realized that the nearest ukrainian positions from Mariupol was about 100 kilometers now in about mid-april i know that the ukrainian military did send helicopter resupply into azostal right Yes. They sent stingers, javelins. Not javelins. No javelins? No, no, no javelins. And it was like a very bad surprise for us because I thought, what's the problem? What's the problem for you to send javelins? But they did not send javelins, they sent matadors. 
But as you know, motorboats are not such efficient as, as javelins. I don't know why, maybe they did not want to waste javelins for this battle, because it was obvious how this battle will end. So they released the videos later of the helicopters flying into Azovstal and offloading a couple of special forces and then putting some of the wounded on the helicopters to take them out. Did you see any of that or you were you busy fighting? I saw people that came to Mariupol as reinforcement on yeah. helicopters. Yeah. Several of my friends, several of my friends came here to Mariupol on the helicopters. And mostly they were used to hold the defense on the right bank. Because that was the hottest like, point of the time in Mariupol. So yes, I talked to a lot of them. And the guys that came to Mariupol on helicopters, that was, wasn't like a special forces. No. No, no, that was like just simple guys. Volunteers though, right? That knew they were flying in to something that they might not come out count of? Yes. yes, they knew that it was a one-way ticket. They were conscious of that fact. How many were there, do you think? I think around 60. And that's about mid-April, I think? Not mid-April, it's the end of March, and maybe the, the last operation was at the beginning of the April. It was the last helicopter operation. Okay. After that, there was no such opportunity to send helicopters. The news said that one of the things sent in was a Starlink. Yes, they helped us a lot. Yeah. Because in any war, like, communication is like, on the top of the needs. So you could tell a difference before the Starlink came in and after? What was the difference? It became easily to communicate. It became easily to coordinate. Because every squad, every team had a map. It was called Krupova. It's a Ukrainian invention from the past days of anti-terroristic operation. And we are using that map like we are... It's a digital map or a physical map? Yeah, it's a digital. It's on a digital map. On your cell phone? On, the, on a cell phone, on a tablet. Okay. And what is it called? Krupova. And on this map, you see all your positions, enemies' positions. Oh, so like when I was in Kiev, I studied something like that called Delta. That's pretty the same story. Same thing, yes. Right? Same thing. Okay. Okay. Yes. Uh, we had uh, two such systems uh, like Krupova and uh, Combat. Okay. Uh, the Combat map is refreshing like in the real time. If you have internet connection, you can refresh it. And you can see like the newest uh, situation yeah. on, on the front line. And it's very important to know how defensive line lies. Yeah. So these maps, these situational awareness maps were different before Starlink came in and after they were a lot better. Before Stalin came, it was very hard to refresh them. Okay. You had to go to the command post and to refresh it manually. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the command post was in Azovstal, right? Underground? No, no, no. I'm talking about the local command post. Like there was company yep. uh, command post, a battalion command post, and the main command post on the Azovstal. Okay. The regiment command post was in? Yes, yes the regiment command post. And after that, that, it became like the main command post of all Mariupol Horizon. And were those in probably in buildings, right? Just to stay protected? They're inside buildings, maybe basements? Uh, basements. On, only basements. Only basements. Yes, Got only it. basements. Yep. I have to go around the world and tell people about how important the underground is. As many militaries don't understand that in a lethal battle like this, with this much artillery, this much bombing, your command posts have to be underground. You should be under the ground, yes. Absolutely. Okay. But that means different things for different equipment like 
some equipment doesn't work underground, so putting the command post underground is hard. You have to plan for it. You have to be able to. Oh, you can use wires for that for radio stations. That's that's not a problem. That's not the biggest problem for you. Right. It's better to save a life, like, right. and to carry all that wires than, yeah. than to be dead without that wire. Right. Absolutely. So, what are we in about mid-April now? Not mid-April, beginning of the April. Okay. What's next? So all the resupplies have stopped, you said, at the beginning of April. No more helicopters. There was like four successful helicopter operations. Yep. Didn't some of those Ukrainian helicopters get shot down? I know one of the missions... Two, two helicopters yeah. were shut down, okay. yes. Okay. And did you know about that? And, and what did that... Uh, yes, yes, we knew about that. Did it impact morale or... Yes. Yeah, but... We knew about that because I used to read a lot the Telegram channels, our enemies' Telegram channels. Oh, so you're reading, in the battle, you're reading the enemy's telegram channels? Yes, of course, all of us read. So you all had cell phones? Uh, yes. Was there a policy, though, of what you could or could not do on the cell phone? Yes, uh, it was such a policy that you can't, like, publish photos from the positions. You can't publish some sensible information. For us, like, it's obvious for, for our company, for reconnaissance. But the, it's not obvious for all the people, like, from infantry. And some of them were posting photos from the shelters on the Azov Steel. Yep. And using those photos, Russians figured out there the shelters allocated and bombed the shelters with the rockets and bombs. Wow. So they were taking photos of the shelters and then... They were taking photos near the shelters. Yeah. So it was very easy to figure out where the shelter is located. But no, like, human stupidity is limitless. Yeah, no, soldiers will do that. And I know that's, that's a big concern... Since everybody had cell phones, were they talking to people, their families, and their friends outside of Mariupol? Yes. So always will be some information leaks, both from us, from our enemy, because it's like human nature. Right, but you were watching the telegrams of the enemies as well, though. Was there anybody in the command post whose job it was to, like, search? Yes, they searched through telegram channels, through social media. They did really great work. They started that work before the full-scale invasion during the anti-terroristic operation. They even pretended like they were chatting with our enemy, pretending like to be a woman. And while chatting, they were receiving some sensible information where they allocated their common posts. So it's social engineering skills. And that's like in the Azov command post? There's like people who's responsible for doing that? Yes, yes. There was such such people. Great. Okay, so beginning of April. Uh, yes, at the end of March we moved to the right bank. The work was like, no, nothing such outstanding. The last battle on the right bank was the battle for the hill. It was called a trash hill. The battle for trash hill, I like it. For trash hill, yes. We was ordered to assault that position because it was like the dominant height in this area. For that time, our enemy was, nearest position was at the Mariupol airport. Do you know when the, the airport was occupied and when it fell? Do you remember? Uh, no, no, I no. don't remember. For some time, airport was a gray zone. There was an operation when we assaulted the airport and pushed them away from the airport. But it was very hard to stay there because, as you can see, there is a big distance between the airport and the city. Yep, a lot of open ground. Yes, open yeah. ground. Open ground, and you became like an easy target for them. That's right. Kind of like the people at Hostomel, the Russians. Yes. 
So it, it stayed as a gray zone, but after that they occupied it. So, firstly, this position was possessed by our troops, but they were forced to retreat from the hill because of the massive artillery shellings. The shellings could last for 12 hours in a row. At that day, all day we spent defending the port area, Mariupol port, and at the night, again, we were put on alert, and we were ordered to assault the hill. Trash hill. The trash hill, yes. Uh, so, we had 120mm mortar fire providing a covering fire for us, but the amount of mines was very limited, and we can use only 5 rounds for all the operation. For that time, like, the 120 mortar was the most massive weapon we yeah. had in Mariupol, okay. and our mortar division were using that 120 to stop, like, the 10 columns. They showed real great efficiency and great precision in firing. Yeah. But the amount was very limited. Some rounds we got from the helicopters. So the helicopters brought in 120 ammo? Yes. And also we were using an automatic grenade launcher. Like a Mark 19? Yes, the Soviet version of Mark 19 is called uh, Agas. But, I mean, so you're attacking Trash Hill with only five rounds of 120 and you have some grenade launchers. Yes, in maybe 20 up to 15 grenades. Yes, we were allowed to use up to 15 okay. grenades for, for that. Also, we were using a night drone with thermal camera and the drone helped us to figure out their enemies located on that hill. And so mortar and uh, grenade launcher provided a covering fire for us. So we had opportunity to get up on the hill cowardly. When we approached like the hill, we climbed on the hill cowardly and silently. The drone operator told us there were enemies located, and we got to enemy maybe up to seven meters. Wow! We started firing. Did they have trenches dug on the hill, or they're just what were their positions? Very poor trenches. Okay, got foxholes maybe. Yes, foxholes. Because that hill was made like of trash and of some obstacles, rocks, it was very hard to drag trenches there. Great. So we started firing and our enemy couldn't figure out that we are like their enemy. They thought that we are Russians. Right. And we shout them, oh, okay, don't shoot, we are Russians, and uh, continue our shoot. So after that we neutralized the first group, we continue uh, our way on the hill. The firefight lasted for maybe 30 minutes. We neutralized maybe the, the whole platoon there. We had only one person wounded, and it was like, uh, they were firing like Somali style, you know? Spray and pray is what I call it. Yes, yes. It lasted maybe for 30 minutes. We neutralized almost all of them. Uh, two or three people were captured during that fight. And after that, like, we liberated that, that hill and guided our infantry there to hold this position. But after two days, our forces were pushed away from that hill, also because of the massive artillery fire. And several days after, all our defense on the right bank collapsed. And they pulled back to the factory? Yes, yes. Uh, we had an operation, so-called evacuation to the Ace of Steel. For the time, on the right bank, we had, like, a double encirclement. There was one big encirclement around the city, and there was a smaller encirclement around the right bank. So we had a free territory in the middle of the right bank. All other territory... Cut off from the factory. Yes, we were separated from our main forces on Azov Steel and left bank. So we had to move through enemy's positions to get to our forces on Azov Steel. When did you do that? 
it was 15th of April. So that was like, if you remember the uh, Save Private Ryan. Yeah. You remember that scene at the beginning, the uh, Amaha Beach? Yeah. Something like that. That was the pretty the same story because the intensity of artillery shelling and firing was pretty the same. So we had such a plan. We had to move in two columns. One column went on foot and other column on vehicles. Vehicles carried injured fighters because for that time it was impossible to carry injured fighters to the Azov Steel directly and they were uh, located on the field hospitals on the right bank. But those field hospitals were horrible. That was like those pictures from the First World War. Every day several people were dying because of blood loss, inflammations and so on. So almost all the vehicles were loaded with injured fighters, with ammunition, with weapons and other column went on foot. The size of the column that went on foot was pretty big. It was around 400 people. Our group was in the vanguard of that column. As long as we had reconnaissance, we had night visions, thermal scopes. Our aim was to neutralize enemy on our way to the Azov Steel. Because here in the area of the railway station, in these residential areas, that was all the enemy's defensive lines. And they had several defensive lines here. We started creating our columns on this road. And this column was noticed by our enemy because as I, as I told before they every night they're, they're using like drones yep. to make surveillance after that they started artillery firing I tried to persuade myself that it's like targeted not on our column I thought that they they're targeting like other other targets but obviously they were targeting us so despite that massive artillery shelling we didn't stop, because for us it was a question of survival. Yeah. We can't stop. We approached the first positions of our enemy. Using uh, like our equipment, we neutralized all of them. Uh, after that, Russians started artillery firing on all this area. And uh, actually, they were destroying their own positions. And they were killing their own people on their positions. But they didn't care about that. Within the two hours, we approached the river of Kalmius. And here is... The old boat station. Boat station? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. So we concentrated in these buildings. How many, how many people? All foot columns, so okay. 400 people. I'm talking about foot column only because I was a part of that column. So we were at the beginning of that column, our group. We concentrated in that buildings. We found some boats on that station. And using that boats, we crossed the river. But uh, my group, we decided not to wait for the boats and we crossed the river by ourselves. We just swimmed through, through the river. So 400 people crossed from the old boat station, Yes. crossed the river trying to get to the factory. Yes. And you swam. Uh, we swim, yes. Wow. So we crossed the river and then we approached like the factory. The vehicle column had the worst situation because they had to concentrate in this area and this area was like it was easy like to make large artillery shellings here they were using like mortars grad systems artillery system everything all ways and means to destroy us there was two bridges the new bridge that was completely destroyed by aerial bombs and the old bridge 
that old bridge from uh, maybe Soviet times. It's very weak, it's narrow. Yeah. But at that time we had like only one band on yeah. this bridge yeah, that so we can move. You could use it, yeah. Yes, we can use it. But of course it was very hard. A lot of vehicles just fell into the water. Wow. Even with people inside. A lot of people drowned. Wow. As for me, I realized right away that it was very dangerous to move on vehicles. Yeah. Yes, and in such situations, I prefer to move on my feet. Yeah, I imagine. Yes, because yeah. you're more... You feel like you're more in control, yeah. Yes. And as for me, it was no matter how dangerous it was to move on the feet, yeah. I decided to move on feet. And I decided I made the right decision because those vehicle column got very high losses. Very high losses. Yeah. You said this breakout is on 15 April, right? Uh, yes, this was 15, 15 of April, yes. I, I remember this date. Because... I bet. It's amazing. And maybe at 2 or 3 p.m. we were uh, already on the, on the factory. Okay. So some of the vehicles made it though, right? Yes, some of the vehicles made it. Maybe 50% of the vehicles made it. And also there was a group that lost their weight and they approached the factory only the next day. Wow. A group consists of maybe 50 people. They were hiding for all the day in the area of city garden. In the residential areas they were hiding. Russians were trying to catch them, but they were hiding. And they moved to the factory only on the next day. Wow. Was there anybody that you knew part of that group? Yes. So as a result, we joined our forces here on the factory. For that time, all the territory of the factory was under our control and part of the left bank was also under our control. But after that, Russians moved all the forces they had in Mariupol to assault these residential areas and to assault the factory. And after maybe a week, we lost all these areas outside the factory and we had only as of steel factory under our control. When do you think that was? About April, at the end of April? Uh, yes. At the beginning of May, they started assaulting the factory itself. They occupied this hill. Cinder Black Hill? Yes, they occupied it. And they occupied some industrial facilities on the factory. So now we're at the very beginning of May. How did you defend the steel factory if you're all inside there? It was hard because enemy was using a lot of armored vehicles and tanks. So they had such a tactics. They started with destroying all the buildings uh, when uh, where our defensive lines laid and after that then uh, where was just uh, ruins they were started assaulting with their infantry but their infantry every time was very afraid of direct confrontation with us and they chose the tactics so better to destroy all the factory uh, with artillery and airplanes than to assault them with the personnel there also the extensive use of aviation. Attack helicopters? Uh, uh, attack helicopters and airplanes. Airplanes predominant. One of my friends, he tried to count how many combat flights Russians airplanes are uh, making. And he counted 96 combat flights within 12 hours. Wow. And one combat flight equals at least one bomb or one rock. So we can count. So. Some of the bunkers were destroyed because of the attacks. As you said, some of the bunkers weren't made to resist bombing. Were some of the bunkers closer to the 
surface level and others deeper? Actually, not a single bunker was made to resist artillery shellings or air bombs. Wow. But some of them did survive the bombings, right? Yes, yes. It was hard like to approach them. For example, uh, our bunker we lived in uh, laid under this building. And this building like was like a shield. Because to destroy our bunker, they had to destroy this building firstly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, that was a five-story building, pretty oh. large. Okay. Uh, our shelter was like in a very good position. But uh, some of other shelters there were under uh, two-story buildings. And it was uh, much easier to destroy them. The Russians didn't really know where all the bunkers were, right? I think they knew because there was some of people who worked on this factory yeah. and who decided to cooperate with Russians. Yes, and they gave them a map where all the bunkers were located. Okay. So they knew almost, almost everything. So now we're in first week of May and you, you guys are just defending. There's no resupplies. There's lots of wounded at this point inside the bunkers. Yes. And there's still civilians there or, or have the civilians been evacuated yet? I think it was maybe 10 of May. We arranged evacuation of civilians, cooperation uh, with uh, United Nations and Red Cross. We arranged evacuation of the civilians. There was a short ceasefire regime, and there was almost all civilians were evacuated. Yep. So there was only militaries uh, on the factory. Got it. And then, when does it end? It ended on the 16th of May. We received an order from our high command to stop the defense. There was negotiations. Those negotiations took place on the factory itself. These negotiations included like representatives of our military intelligence, of Russian military intelligence, and all commanders of all military, military units from Azov Steel. So it was like a meeting? Yes, there was a meeting. They were sitting like on the same, pretty the same table like this. Wow. There was our delegation on the one side and Russian delegation on the other side. And there was some agreements about our surrender. Yep. For us, it was inappropriate to leave the factory with white flags. No, it's a very symbolical act and for us it was inappropriate. We wanted to leave the factory with all the courage we have. Yeah. And there was these negotiations like implied two conditions. The first was that attitude towards our prisoners should match Geneva Conventions should be no such thing as beaten, tortures, and so on. And the second conditions imply that we should be released within half a year. That was the day when uh, civilians were evacuated uh, uh, from the factory, and they wanted to start the negotiations right away. So I remember the day pretty good. After the several days, like there was a bigger negotiations with all the commanders involved. Uh, so, ah, yeah, we should be released within three to four months for soldiers and surgeons and up to half a year for officers. Okay. But as you know, Russians violated all the agreements, and now it's almost a year for our people in, in the captivity. So how long did you serve in captivity? Uh, seven months. And then how many are still in captivity? 700. Wow. Half of them are located in Donetsk, on the occupied territories, and half of them are located in Tehanrok. It's in the Russian Federation. Wow. It's an amazing story, and I thank you for sharing it with me. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention? Mm, well, what I can say, in such combat actions like we had in Mariupol, you have to be good equipped with drones, both day drones and night drones. Your mortar divisions should have an ability to provide very precision fire, because 
It's very efficient to use 120 mortar to destroy enemy tanks. And our defense was based like mostly on that mortars to destroy tanks and uh, armored vehicles. Also, when you're fighting the opponent that is blind at night, it's very efficient and we like neutralize dozens of enemy combatants at night time. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.